been a rich, rich conference. Uh, stories about working the church planting here in Orangeburg, and then the completion of the New Testament in a language in Indonesia. It's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? You know, I really only have one complaint, <clears throat> frankly. You know, I got up this morning for my usual swim, and uh, I get up at 5, and I go to the Y, and uh, actually I get up at 4, and I get to the Y by 5, and uh, I went in for my usual swim, and when I got done with a mile, I went into the locker room to get dressed, and as I always do, I hopped on the scale there to see where I stood, and uh, I was three pounds up on Friday, so I'm thinking, wow, you guys really have great potlucks. <laughs> I'm going to be swimming a lot more this week to try to get rid of some of that. Well, uh, thank you for these wonderful, wonderful testimonies of what God is doing around the world. Well, now I know you're all kind of curious about the Jesus toothbrush. Uh, and I want to get into that in, in a moment. But I do also want to say that uh, I trust your still seeking the Lord. Some of you maybe haven't taken up my challenge of a half hour with a Bible with the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? How can I be about your business of the Great Commission? And I'm going to continue to pray for you. I'm going to do it for two weeks, uh, and uh, we'll see uh, if the Lord continues to lay different visions, different burdens on different ones of you. That will certainly be my prayer over the next couple of weeks. Well, of course... Uh, it's kind of silly, the Jesus toothbrush. Um, you know, I've, I've asked that question in many contexts over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I've gotten lots of different thoughts on this. Um, most of the time, people just look kind of confused. But, you know, there are those who will come up, well, you know, maybe some kind of twig, maybe... Maybe he had some, some kind of toothpick-like thing that he used, you know. But what you, you normally pick up is that when people deal with the question of the Jesus toothbrush, they really only have two reactions primarily. One is, I don't know what Jesus used for a toothbrush. And then, quite frankly, I don't care. Now, are most of you in that category you really, really don't care what sort of a toothbrush Jesus used? Well, here's, here's the thing. Jesus does not define a culture. Jesus does not define for you how to brush your teeth. He does not define for you how you greet people. He does not define for you what kind of clothing you should wear. He does not define for you what kind of house you should build. He doesn't define for you what language you should speak when you address him kind of amazing, isn't it? Because you see, Jesus does not teach a culture. He does not come along and say, everyone who wants to come into my kingdom has to speak this language, has to wear these kinds of clothes, has to brush their teeth with this kind of a toothbrush. Jesus leads us into principles of life that may be uniquely applied in every circumstance. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are qualities of life that can be expressed in unique ways in every cultural circumstance. Uh, like our friends who are planning the church here in Orangeburg said, 
that people will bring beautiful gifts up upon the altar of God. And those gifts, I believe, are the beautiful things that every culture brings. Now, clearly, um, there are three aspects to culture. Some things in culture really don't matter. If I was to walk up to you and stretch out my hand to shake your hand, well, you'd probably stretch your hand out as well and be friendly, and we'd shake hands. Now, if I leaned over to give you a gentle sort of peck on each cheek, you might have been a little uncomfortable. However, if you were French, you'd be perfectly happy, wouldn't you? And you know, Jesus doesn't really tell you to do this or that. That really doesn't matter. Maybe you're a little more friendly, more you know, nice about how you do it if you're a follower of Jesus. But frankly, Jesus doesn't define those aspects of culture for us. Now, there are some aspects of culture that Jesus defines, that the scriptures define as sinful. And these are things that have to be rejected, that we are called to turn away from. There's also a wonderful category in the middle of things that can be transformed as new meaning is poured into it that gives glory to God and blessing to his people. Now, I mention this because in Islam there is a toothbrush. There is an Islamic toothbrush, and you can buy it in any mosque around the world. It's called Miswak. Uh, it is the branch of the acacia tree, and I think we have a picture up there that shows it to you. Uh, I bought a couple of chunks of it. I was in Kazan, Russia some years ago, and I bought at the local mosque a, a chunk of Miswak, um, you know, just to show people this is the Islamic toothbrush. You see, Islam is a God culture where everyone on planet Earth needs to behave like a 7th century Arab. Well, Jesus doesn't lead us in that way, does he? He calls us to incarnate his principles, his way of life, his redemption within every culture and tribe and tongue and people and nation on Earth. And the passage I'd like to take us to to explain that is from the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. This is a very familiar passage. I'm sure you probably heard some teaching on this. I want to kind of give it a little bit of a different twist tonight because I want to challenge you tonight in the area of evangelism, personal evangelism. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at the principle. And then we're going to ask the question, how does that apply to how you share the good news of Jesus Christ with people here in Orangeburg? And in the process, I'm going to tell you the story of Emily. Okay? You ready for this? We're not going to take a lot of time. Let's just look at the scriptures and then do one application that I hope will be useful, valuable, helpful to you in your ministry right here in Orangeburg. So we'll begin reading from verse 19 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And here's what the scripture says. Though I am free and belong to no man... I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law. Although I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. 
so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Well, we're familiar with this passage, aren't we? I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. Now, our friends here tonight have illustrated that for us, haven't they? All the way from taking a homeless man who's jobless to his job in the mornings and picking him up in the afternoons. That's becoming like someone, isn't it? Going to where they are rather than making them come to where you are. Going to a place like Papua New Guinea and not only learning that local language but the trade language and all the other aspects that go along with that for 30 years. That's an example of a person becoming like the people that you're trying to reach, living in their context. In other words, imitating Jesus. Isn't that really what it's about? You know, the incarnation teaches us one primary thing, that God came down to live amongst us, to experience life as we do, to suffer as we do, and even to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. And so he came to us, to our circumstance, to where we are, in order that we might be able to understand God and come to him. And in a wonderful way, the Great Commission is, in a sense, God saying, okay, I've modeled this for you. Now it's time for you to do the same thing. I often wonder, where did, where did Paul get this idea? You know, where did he get this idea of teaching that, you know, I should become uh, weak to the weak. I should become a Jew to the Jews. I should become like one under the law to those under the law. I should become like those without the law. Now, he keeps the biblical balance here. It doesn't mean that we're antinomians. You know what that means. People who think that there's no law. Clearly, we have the law of God in our lives that controls how we live. But to the degree that it does not um, violate scriptural principles, my calling is to become like in order that I may reach those who otherwise wouldn't hear the gospel. Well, let's take this to a practical level. What would it mean for us in Orangeburg to become like? Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I was raised on the four spiritual laws. How many of you here learned how to share the gospel using the four spiritual laws? Okay. I was led to Christ by Campus Crusade for Christ in 1971. And uh, I well remember learning how to, to say the four laws to somebody. And I used it many, many times. I even have led uh, a few people, I'm not a great evangelist, but I've led a few people to Christ using the four spiritual laws method. But you know, times change, cultures change, peoples change, things changed. And one of the things that I noticed about the four laws, even though it's still kind of a backup, you know, when I'm just kind of, when I don't know what else to say, I still use the four laws because it's all memorized, right? Okay, so it's real easy to go through that. But one of the things that I noticed is that many of the ideas that are foundational to the four spiritual laws, that are kind of assumptions, are no longer true. For instance, the four laws assume 
that you believe that the Bible, that is the, the person you're talking to, believes that the Bible is authoritative. Now, I think you use the Bible whether people consider it authoritative or not, but nevertheless, there's an assumption that underlies that, that you know, the Bible you accept too is, is authoritative. Or even this idea, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, for a lot of people, what? You know, 30, 40 years ago, most people did assume that God loved. A lot of people today don't share that assumption. That isn't even on their scopes. And of course, if you're dealing with a Muslim, God is not love. God never declares his love in Islam. There, you know, God has nothing to do with love. He has everything to do with power and the law, but not love. Love is not one of his 99 names. So what do you do when you have people today, and increasingly this is true of even of our average everyday millennial, who do not share our assumptions? Well, one of the things that I notice about Jesus, and I find it curious, in fact, somebody needs to write a book on this, is that Jesus very often asks questions. Have you ever noticed that? In different circumstances, like when he comes to the woman at the well who doesn't share his assumptions about pretty much anything, and he begins by saying, would you mind giving me a drink of water? And then when she sort of rejects him, he kind of throws out another kind of rhetorical question. If you knew who you were talking with, you would have asked him. What would I have asked you? I'm really impressed with the fact that Jesus, yes, Use this one. This is not working. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I can get rid of this encumbrance then. That's always fun. Get rid of the apparatus. All right. Well, forgive me. I won't be walking around as much. That's the one problem with these microphones. You don't walk around as much. Well, think about this. What if you approached people using questions? Kind of using a non-method method that would help you to understand who you're talking to before you begin to come with a message. By the way, as I look in the scriptures, I'm impressed with how deeply God's apostles understood the people they were talking to. Uh, I don't have time to go into this, but if you go into Acts 17, you will understand pretty rapidly that the apostle Paul, when he speaks to Stoics and Epicureans, is very aware of what Stoics and Epicureans believe. And I don't have time to go into that. Uh, maybe some other time, invite me back. We'll go through Acts chapter 17. It's a lot more than just the fact that he quotes some pagan poets. Much more than just pagan poets. He really understood his people. And so my question to you is whether you're doing church planting in Orangeburg or you're going to a new station in Papua New Guinea, my question to you in the area of evangelism is this. How well do you know your people? And if you're not sure you know them so well, maybe it might be a smart idea to use the Jesus questioning method. It's a non-method method because you're not assuming anything to start with. You just simply want to understand your person. And I think as you do that, you are in essence crossing over to where they are rather than beginning from where you are to reach them. 
Now, this is why I wrote a book entitled The Seven Essential Questions of Life. Uh, in fact, I used that this morning with uh, two different people at the Y. Uh, there was a new lady who was a lifeguard, Caroline. And, uh, you know, lifeguards don't have anything to do but sit in the chair, you see. So lifeguards for me are fair game. Uh, and then the people who sit at the front desk also are sort of sitting there with not a whale of a lot to do at 6 o'clock in the morning when I'm done with my swimming. So uh, the lady there, her name is Debbie, and I initiated the uh, same kind of a conversation. And my conversation goes a little bit like this. Uh, I said, you know, uh, Debbie or Caroline, um, I'm really fascinated with people's worldviews. Would you mind if I asked you seven questions about your worldview? Now, let me tell you, I, I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times, and to date, I've never had anyone say no. Okay? Now, Caroline and Debbie, I just started it this morning, so it's not a full story. So let me talk about Emily now, all right? Because Emily was a lifeguard uh, sometime back, and I can kind of walk you through how the conversation went. So Emily's sitting there in the lifeguard's chair, and I said to Emily, uh, would you mind if I asked you seven questions about your worldview? Because I'm just really fascinated about how people look at life. And she said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So I told her first what the seven questions are. And they're very simple questions. Origins, where do we come from? Power, how do we get power for living? Destiny, what's our purpose? Where are we going? Truth. How do I know true from untrue? Right and wrong. How do you know right from wrong? Question number six. What's the nature of humankind's problem? Question number seven. What's the solution? So we began this series of questions. And the fun thing is, you know, you don't have a lot of time. So you take five minutes for one question. And here are two interesting principles that I bring to any conversation with a non-Christian. The first one is, I'm not here to tell you why you're wrong. I'm here primarily to understand you. And then, secondly, to be able eventually, when we're done, to describe what you think about life and what your worldview is and see if I'm accurate, if I've understood you correctly. And by the way, I take notes on these. And I keep them in a card file, and it's a prayer file where I pray over these people. Uh, the times that we've spent together, the things that we've said. And by the time I've done this over a period of maybe seven or eight days, maybe spread over a couple of weeks, I have a pretty good idea of where that person is at. Now, initially, it was interesting because Emily was very interested in what I had to say. In fact, when I got to question number two, you know, Power. Where do we get power for successful living? She said, I don't know. What do you think? And I said, well, no, I'm not really here to tell you what I think. Uh, you know, maybe later we can do that, but I'm, I'm just curious what you think. Well, she said, I am, I'm powerless, she said. And that was kind of where the conversation ended. Now, the interesting thing is when you're having a conversation like this over maybe a couple of weeks with someone, you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know where they're at. Now, Emily's situation was rather poignant. Her father had deserted the family, picked up a new girlfriend, and uh, Emily was just starting through college, and her father had delivered an ultimatum to her. 
if you don't accept my new girlfriend, then I'm going to cut you off financially. So she's living in this kind of a world of tension and difficulties. And uh, we got to question number three, which is purpose, destiny. What's your purpose? Why are you here? What's your destiny? Where are you going? And she said, I have absolutely no idea. So what do you think? This is getting problematic. Sometimes people send you signals that they're interested. So on this particular occasion, I broke my usual rule and I answered the question. And I said to Emily, well, you know, uh, I'm a Presbyterian and we have this expression that we have in the Presbyterian catechism. It, it says that, you know, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of humankind? Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. <gasps> she said, when I was a little girl, I used to go to a Presbyterian church, and I remember them saying that. Now, she wasn't a believer. She hadn't been in church in probably 10 years at this point, but there was a memory there. And I began to figure out more and more of this person that I'm talking to. Well, we went through truth, and we went through the issue of right and wrong, and in every case, her life was a life of confusion. No clear rules, no clear regulations, and life is a mess. So we got to the question of human problems. Where does, what is humanity's problem? And she said, people are so selfish. Now, I didn't know what lay behind that emphasis but the struggle she was having with her own father was behind the power. Now, I didn't know it at that point, but I'm starting to get a sense of where this person is at. Finally, I asked her the question, um, what's the solution? And she had the most defeated answer, although I hear this answer a lot, but it was, it's one of those terribly defeated answers. She said, there is no solution because people can't change. Have you ever heard that lie? That's a lie from Satan. People can't change. You know, I used to be a drug addict. Did any of you guess that? I'm not kidding. Four years into heavy drugs. Anybody here guess that? Probably not. People can't change? That's a lie of Satan. Now, I'm not going to say that to her. But I'm thinking to myself, I have got a message of good news for you. So how do we get to the good news? Once you've asked these good questions and you've kind of understood your person and you're praying over them and you even have note cards where you've written down things that they've said so that you can kind of quote back to them things that they've said. And you know, when you come at it with a non-judgmental attitude and you're not there to tell them why they're wrong initially, Eventually there's repentance, but at this stage it's all about understanding. You can't believe the stuff people will begin to share with you. Like my atheist friend Jason, uh, we were talking actually on Friday, and he just started opening up about all kinds of junk in his life. And we've been talking for about three months now, and I've been sharing the gospel with him. And he says, you're the only guy I can talk to. I don't like most evangelicals because they're always coming with their little thing. And he said, but I can, I can tell you stuff. Well, wouldn't you like to have that kind of relationship with a non-Christian where they felt like they could really talk with you? So when we got done with the seven questions, I said to Emily, 
would you like to hear how I answer these seven questions? And she said, yes, I've been asking, so yes, tell me. So we took, again, one question a day. And you know, if you walk through those seven questions biblically, you've essentially shared the gospel, haven't you? And when I got to the end of that, I got to my transitional question, and it's simply this. Emily, do you have a relationship with God, or are you in process? Now, I didn't say or not for a very simple reason. People will lie in situations like that. And there are three possible responses when you say, do you have a personal relationship with God or are you in process? They can say, I'm not there. And that's a good signal that says this person isn't ready to hear the gospel presentation and be asked to repent. Okay? Got to marinate in prayer. Let some time pass and continue the dialogue. The other thing that they can say is, I have a personal relationship with God. And if they really do, you already knew that from the answers that they gave. But if they say, I'm a person in process, they've essentially said, tell me the gospel. And so that day, I told the gospel to Emily, and I put a big piece of paper in front of her, and here I fell back on the old four spiritual laws. I drew a throne on the piece of paper, and I said, who's on the throne of your life? Who's controlling your life? And she said, I am. I said, if you really want to find peace, if you really want to find God, Jesus needs to be on the throne of your life. You need to make him Lord. And uh, at that point, I knew I was dealing with a person very open and very concerned because I really knew pretty much what was going on in her life because she told me. And she said a beautiful thing. She says, I'm not quite ready yet. Can... uh, Can we wait a little bit? And I said, that's fine. I'll be praying for you. Let's see what happens. Well, that weekend was Easter weekend, and uh, somebody else stole my thunder. She went to to a local church plant uh, with her mother because they felt like it's Easter, and she's had this spiritual experience that she wants to find out more. And uh, at that service, the pastor gave a call to commit your life to Jesus, and she and her mother both went forward and received the Lord. So the next Monday, I come in from my mile swim, and I I knew from about 40 yards away, you know, the glow on her face. I knew she's found the Lord. She's turned her life over to Christ, and we had a wonderful time talking together. Um, How do you share the gospel? Do you share the gospel? How often? Friends, I am convinced that you will not consistently do what you do not enjoy. Okay, And if you don't enjoy evangelism because you have some sort of a system that you've tried to use and you've been rejected, you're not going to continue to consistently do that. Let me just share that in the 10 years that I've been using this kind of an approach, asking questions, listening well, I have never been rejected. When I came to the transitional question, would you like to hear how I answer these seven questions, I have never had a single person say no now and and in terms of negative experiences I have really hardly ever had one negative experience so are you excited about going over to the non-christians place rather than inviting them to come to your worldview you go into their worldview 
understand them where they're at. And then, friends, let me just tell you, evangelism becomes fun. In fact, I have so much fun with evangelism, I just can't stop because it's never negative. And I would like to encourage you, if you want mentoring in this, I have a book on the subject. If you'd like some mentoring, you got my email. I mentor people all the time on how to witness to Muslims and how to witness to your average everyday American pagan. And I would love to stay in touch and encourage you in evangelism. Because when you do what Paul said here, you become a pagan to reach a pagan. You become a secularist to reach an American secularist. When you come over to their worldview and you listen intently, and over the weeks they get to see that you really were listening to them. By the way, if you do this with any kind of consistency, you are unusual. You become like Jesus. Because what are most people doing? You know, you see them at a restaurant, you know, three couples and three tables, apparently on a date, and both of them are doing this. Date? People don't listen to people anymore. We have a wonderful opportunity in our days as we seek out people and listen to them, as we come over to their worldview and ask the question, how do you solve the world's problems? And when they say, I have no idea, then God opens doors to share the gospel with them. And yes, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to go to Papua New Guinea. I want you to go to the Muslim world and to the Hindu world and to the Chinese world. But we start in our Jerusalem. And so let me encourage you, be about sharing the good news of Jesus right here, right now. And if you haven't done it in a long time and you'd like some some help, uh, that's what I'm here for. And I would love to help you with that. And so as we get ready to leave the salt shaker tonight to become salt and light in Orangeburg first, because that's where we live, let me pray for you that God is going to give you some interesting conversations with non-Christians over the next couple of weeks. Can we do that? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the principle of the scriptures that we're called to become all things to all men in order that by all means we might save some. And we long to listen and to enjoy and to understand and to come to a place in prayer for a person where we know just how much they really need the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, through us, reach the ends of the earth, but through us also, Lord, Reach Orangeburg and give us grace to be bringing many new children of Christ into this place, into the fellowship of believers. And so by that means, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.